Thank you, sir, for your service. I said this to a Marine veteran in the hospital the other day who was admitted with a bad pneumonia, and he was getting back on his feet, getting ready to hopefully go home for Thanksgiving. He said, no, thank you, Doc, for yours. I nodded and smiled, but I was thinking that every day I will take the same train home to my suburban neighborhood, sleep in a comfy bed, and feel safe at home. As doctors, we sign up to treat disease to help function, but we don't sign up to get in harm's way for others' safety and freedom. COVID changed things around the hospital for sure, and in the thick of things, the real and raw emotional and physical struggles many healthcare workers went through changed the conversation. Yes, do no harm. Yes, heal the sick. But risk your life in the process? We are amazingly almost three years from the start of the pandemic. Things are different now, mostly for the better. Sports are back. Music is back. Politics aside, we are of course safer due to vaccines. However, we lost many people. The world lost many people. Today on Thanksgiving, I am thankful for a kind of new normal. But most of all, I am thankful for the men and women who have served out there right now and every day around the world who wake up every morning and genuinely not only think of others' welfare, but do it while their own safety or life may be at risk. That's why we need to take care of them. Our home-based friend, Green Beret Julian Kitching, said at Fenway this summer something I will never forget. He summed this up in what he calls the equation. He said, This is about simple math. When we sign people up to go do difficult things for all of us, we need to automatically sign up for that other side of the equation, which is making sure we are taking care of those families and service members when they come back. We must pour in as much as they have given. Thank you to you in this grateful nation who support this great program to address that other side of the equation. If you'd like to make a donation to Homebase during this holiday season, go to homebase.org slash donate. The other night, I got a text from a friend, Mapatai, who I've known for 35 years, since ninth grade, as hard as that is to imagine. Matt is a retired Army E-4 specialist who spent his younger years working in the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Corps, or JAG. He would go on to support a special ops group as a legal specialist, and I knew that Matt spent time in Russia and its surrounding countries following the Gulf War, but that was the extent of it. I found out that over the years he kept in touch with friends and colleagues in that region, and when last February came around, the invasion of Ukraine really shook him, and he wanted to do something to help. So recently, he's been involved in an organization called Cutting the Red. Per its name, it's a group of people who know that there is always a lot of red tape involved in carrying out even the simplest acts of humanity. This new mission has been all about helping Ukrainian refugees coming into the U.S., and oddly enough, in this case, providing shelter and support in Matt's and my own hometown outside of Rochester, New York. So Matt was calling me, his high school buddy that works in healthcare, because he got a text that night from a Ukrainian mom of her two-year-old in need of a nebulizer for asthma. Hospitals and organizations around the country are providing this kind of support to our new neighbors in cities all over. I'm so thankful for Matt and an opportunity to help. And I look forward to telling this story of gratitude around my own family's Thanksgiving table today. So here's our chat. It's catching up with an old friend, doing new things, 
and continuing to serve others. Hey, Matt, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's it's uh, we we were saying before that uh, we had to adjust our glasses because you know we, when we first met a long time ago we wouldn't be having that conversation. So uh, it's amazing. Time does fly. Time flies and, and time changes things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know it's we talk about brotherhood and family uh, and the military family at home base all the time. Um, mm-hmm. When I when I look at you and hear your voice. I think of like brotherhood and family because we, we, we basically knew each other when we were kids. Sure. So it's, it's really good to reconnect. Um, you know, we, we grew up in, in, in uh, Rochester, New York, and then you, you, uh, you stayed, stayed on in a sense uh, at the university of Rochester, right? I did. That was my undergrad. You knew that um, part of your calling was to go into the military and tell me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I come from a military background, you know, at the age when we were growing up, uh, military to me and talking about it, it was a very comfortable thing Hmm. Um, only because I had uncles and grandparents, people that had participated in in pretty harsh conditions um, with the military and served. And you got to hear the struggles of life, um, things that they did in the service. Um, You know, there's good open dialogue. When I hit and came of 18, um, obviously when you can join for the join service, um, I opted to uh, go in as an army reservist. Hmm. My brother, my brother had joined the Air Force two years earlier, and um, I got to you know share, share that experience with him for a couple of years. So I had a good idea of what I was getting myself into. Right. Right. Um, so around the around the sort of the dinner table, so to speak, it, it certainly wasn't wasn't foreign to you, but. If anything, you know, I always know that, you know, you, you're a guy that was was not only uh, looking to help others, but you 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 always have had sort of a uh, an ability to figure things out and to come up with a plan. And I always I always respected that about you because uh, I certainly didn't <laughs> at that time. But anyway, so so you so um so you you went in or what what year was that? So let's see. This would be what ninety one ninety two. Which is a special time, obviously, because the Gulf War was kicking in. Yeah, so all that stuff uh, started happening, um, um, and that changed things. You, you weren't exactly expecting a war. No one was, um, especially when I was signing up and when I participated and completed uh, basic training, advanced training. Um, that first summer of entry, um, no one knew this was coming. You, you tested in for JAG. Work. Yeah. So what you do is, yeah, you, t- you have to test in. Um, and on the enlisted side, um, you you have to complete um, AIT, uh, which is your advanced training. And that was for JAG. That was at, held at Fort Jackson in South Carolina. So I completed that training. And that's when you're assigned, you, you know, your next step, which is a reserve unit back in my hometown, which is, of course, Rochester, where, where we grew up. But also, tell me about the, uh, the special ops work, the team that you were assigned to. Um, when the war hit, we were um, a support mechanism to a special ops uh, command. You know, everyone's got a role uh, to support that, that unit. So they utilize attorneys, doctors, uh, various professionals, supply units. So I conducted that work in Rochester prior to law school. Yeah, so once I 
left for Nashville and Vanderbilt Law School, um, I was assigned to a unit in Tennessee that it, it was it was a really straightforward um, JAG unit. So, you, you know, you'd walk into an office that would look a lot like, you know, a small law firm. And we had about 14, 15 attorneys. Uh, we did prep work uh, for folks that were going overseas. Um, I mean, just a wide range of things that you would need to look at from everything from insurance to medical records, you know, the transfer of uh, someone's life going overseas. And, and because those are protected things, very often an attorney needs to be involved. So um, uh, at Vanderbilt, I got an opportunity to study overseas and it was a very different time. Um, Gorbachev had left office. Um, Putin is in the wings at that time. And Russia was a very different place. I got to study in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Budapest. That exposed me to Eastern Europe and, and certainly was immersed in, in sort of the Russian-Ukraine community. I cherish my time there, um, but it's a far different place now. And it's extreme. When the war hit, I, w I was hit. Last February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it hit me hard. And uh, I reached out um, to folks on Facebook that I had, you know, stayed connected with over the years. And I said, you know, is anyone, is everyone okay? Um, I had friends in Ukraine and um, certainly near the, the border. And Russia had been antagonizing Ukraine for years. So I've actually been on FaceTime in an upstairs window where someone was showing me soldiers on the ground, bombs going off. Um, but that conflict there, um, it's been brewing for a long, long time, well before uh, they're staging a military presence on the border, threatening to go in and invade. So, so then all of a sudden, cutting the red uh, comes to be from this couple in Rochester, New York. Yeah, I mean, how does that connect I, to you? Yeah, I think a lot when the war started in, in Ukraine, I think a lot of us that had um, any relationship with that region, there, there was something in us that we wanted to help somehow. I started looking more and more into and paying attention to certainly I was watching the news almost nonstop. There was an interesting story that came up in Rochester, and it was about an organization out of San Diego. A gentleman named Shane Smith started a mission um, and a nonprofit called Cutting the Red. And because of his background in Rochester, a lot of the folks that he was helping in Ukraine, he was able to match with volunteers in Rochester. Hmm. So he began. Um, so it's like cutting the red tape, basically. Cutting the red tape. Yeah. Um, so the biggest hurdle before Biden was able to announce exactly how refugee status would work in the U.S., there was no such plan that was established. Hmm. So anyone fleeing, most, you know, were, were rushing into Europe and getting as far away as they could uh, from areas that, you know, were demolished. And some, there was a handful that would land and get as far as the U.K. or Spain. It was a little bit easier to get to the U.S., but nothing official was set up in the U.S. It could, you couldn't just get on a plane and cross the Atlantic. What's the only other option to get to North America? Mexico. So we saw a surge of um, migrants fleeing the war, hitting Tijuana uh, primarily. And there were a number of families that were essentially there at the border waiting for help. It, it was really 
uh, an amazing act of kindness that was taking place um, all over the country. But in chains and cutting the red, um, it was a link to Rochester. And now there's multiple families in Rochester and they're going through a transition, finding jobs, acclimating. So, so circling back to your background, Matt, I mean, you know, you, you've always had a way of getting things done and, and putting things together. And so I could see your wheels turning. So when, you know, when you're trying to get supplies or a place to stay or medical equipment, that, that sort of brought us together because you're think you're trying to think about how do you cut the red tape and like basically call a doctor friend and you called me. Sure. So um, there's a there's a little girl in Rochester that uh, is a refugee from Ukraine. And, um, you know, one thing that they need is a nebulizer, you know, to help her breathe. And so even though these are not thousands of dollars, these are things that you can't just, you know, pick up if you don't have any, you know, any, any real income coming in. So you have grateful hospitals and organizations around that are helping out with things like this. I can imagine that you have other organizations helping with other things. So you go ahead and you make the connection, you get it done. You know, you called me what, two days ago. And now this girl is already getting, does she, she have the nebulizer? Yes. That's really neat. I want to say thank you to you. And, and it's amazing. Um, the time frame that you just mentioned, I got a Facebook message at 920 and I texted you probably like prior at 922. And I immediately go through my head, who is a person that I can call in my world um, that could help me solve this problem? And um, I, I sent you a late night message. I said, I'm sorry, but uh, if, you, if you don't mind, give me a buzz in the morning. I'd like to chat with you. Uh, I've got a problem I want to solve. Thankfully, you called the next morning, and um, but in such a short period of time, I was able to explain my situation, how I thought best to deal with it, and you immediately jumped in and said, man, I think I can help with this. And within, it was almost 9.20, I had sent the information to you. Yeah. There was enough information for you to make a, a quick decision. So in such a short period of time, we moved a mountain uh, uh, for this child uh, very quickly, which is really impressive. Thank you. And um, oh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it's what I think is amazing. And of course, is it, you know, on Thanksgiving, we're really thinking about, listen, we're blessed. We, we grew up in a nice town. We, we, we have, uh, you know, we have our health. Here we are, like, we're lucky, you know, and so these, you know, a lot of people go through these crazy things. And, um, and this is a perfect example. Um, where uh, with something that's out of their control, they're across the world and trying to start a new life. I mean, thank you, Matt. You know, it's an example of you, you really can make a difference. It's not cliche. Like you are making a specific difference. You know, the average family that was, uh, that was able to get over the border, enter Romania, enter uh, Poland, by the time they got there, most of their savings was exhausted. So the yeah. aid was flying directly over them, landing in Kiev. And yeah, that aid did amazing things um, for the community that was remaining. Um, but the refugee the problems, it was enormous. Yeah, um, and it still will continue, obviously, as we get to a year anniversary. Uh, it's coming February. Um, 
there's a mission centric um, aspect of many people that go into the military. And, uh, and I know you've lived this and seen it. And so when there's new missions, there's new purpose. Um, I, I'm always amazed with people that sort of stand up and gravitate towards that because it shows your DNA. I mean, it shows you the, the, the very reason why you started doing what you're doing to begin with. So, um, you love the families that you help. So, yeah. Well, all right, man, you're, you're, uh, you're in my thanks around the table as I stuff my face tomorrow for Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, as a, someone who yeah. we grew up together over, uh, uh, Wegmans and Pontillo's pizza and Abbott's and, uh, garbage plates downtown. Anyone from Rochester will, will know, will know that secret language. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and go Buffalo Bills tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Folks, I, don't, I, I don't know how many feet they're up to now, but uh, digging out. I think they peaked right around, what, seven feet? Seven um, feet. That's wild. Got a lot to be thankful for. So have a great Thanksgiving and uh, think about um, the others that are in need. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you, Matt Bataille, for your service and all you continue to do, my friend. Please join us next week for a conversation with Navy veteran Patrick Johnson, who is a lead rowing coach at Athletes Without Limits and Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, recorded on the banks of the Charles River at the head of the Charles Regatta. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.